like we'll move heaven and earth for the right people, but we're not doing that in this case, right? Yeah. Because it's politically difficult. There is an understandable frustration that the free market is not allowed to cater to housing demands. Yeah. And as a result, the government's also gonna swoop in and say, well, here, just deal with this situation in your backyard that you didn't sign up for and have fun. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, what's new? Um, I nothing. wasn't expecting that question, but <laughs> you know, nothing too exciting. Just hanging out. What's new with you? Well, the San Gennaro Festival is officially over outside of our doors. And, you know, I was walking to work yesterday. They were basically peeling slices of pizza that were stuck to the ground. There was like, you know, basically for about 50 yards, there was just food stuck like inches yeah. thick. Uh, on the ground. Yeah, I normally avoid this area of the city this time of year, but I don't have an option this yeah. this time around. It's quite a smell, quite quite a scene. I'm sure the rats are having fun. They're getting so heavy that they're like almost galloping down the street <laughs> now. You see, you I was sleeping with my window open the other night for like the first time since I moved into this apartment. It was an AC. And I was like, oh, I can hear birds chirping at night. And then I realized I it could hear rats. rats. What yeah. does a rat sound like? Are like they chirp? squeaking, but it kind of like in like in the back of my head, I was like, "Oh, it's just birds," and then I realized what I was hearing, it's and beautiful. now I'm going to close my window. It's for beautiful. They're all so of slow now that they're they're even less scary now because they're not nimble enough to yeah. even get in some of the crevices that they used to They've get into really, to get into buildings. Like, skewed me too much i don't that I mean, means you're a true new yorker now yeah i mean they're you know we we throw our food everywhere we're a gross city someone should use it good for them i don't know well we've got a lot to talk about today that doesn't involve our rodent problem here in new york city we've got three stories later on in this episode that are kind of related they all uh, relate to when there isn't truly a market for something essential mm -hmm. that we have as a society. So we're gonna talk about the hospital system that we have in this country and the sort of dominance of nonprofit hospitals and what that means for us. Uh, we're gonna talk about housing, particularly we're gonna talk about New York housing and, and talk about how it's an example of some real issues that we have about building housing for the most vulnerable in this country. Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna talk about teachers and whether they're paid too much, they're paid too little, or whether it's way more complicated than that. But before we get to any of those three stories, let's talk about something completely different, TikTok and our national security. Ricky, there's been a lot of activity, a lot of debate on this. Yes. What are people talking about? Well, so um, just recently, TikTok and the Biden administration um, reached a draft agreement that basically is meant to set out a way that TikTok can continue to operate in the U.S. without changing ownership, but um, in a way that is hopefully more protective to U.S. users. So um, the Justice Department led negotiations here, and the major revelations are that American data will be stored in servers operated by Oracle, that the U.S. will monitor algorithms to make sure that the, chi the Chinese government or Chinese officials aren't tinkering with it in some way, and that the company will need to create a board of security experts to oversee operations in the United States. And so um, even though Biden didn't take up Trump's kind of zeal for taking down TikTok. Um, this is a movement in the right direction, but critics are concerned that they're still operating here without major changes to ownership. But I mean, it definitely does seem to be greater guardrails than we've had in the past. Right, I think this is a classic example of sort of technocratic versus populist solutions. Like when when you read what you just said, I listen to that and I'm like, and I'm, I'm I, I guess I'm a technocrat. When I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, that solves the problem. You put it in Oracle, we trust Oracle pretty much to mm -hmm. safeguard this and, and create a wall between the sort of parent company and the US-based company. So I'm like, sure. But then you start to think about it and I hear people like Scott Galloway talk about 
the incentives of China. Yeah. And then I see some of the back and forths, you know, going on between TikTok executives and politicians in the U.S. And I start to think to myself, maybe I'm a populist on this one. Maybe this technocratic solution isn't enough. Like this is a company that really does have suspicious ties to the Chinese government, which is pretty much an enemy of the United States. They have every incentive, uh, as Galloway pointed out on Bill Maher, they have any every incentive to come after us. If you believe, as I do, that there is no separation between the CCP and a Chinese company who can disappear a CEO for four weeks, if you believe that the CCP has a vested interest... Are you talking about the Communist Party in, in China. China? Okay. And if you believe there's, the CCP has a, a vested interest in diminishing our standing globally, and then you also acknowledge that people under the age of 18 are spending more time on TikTok than they're spending on every streaming network combined... Are we comfortable, are we down with an organization that wants to undermine America controlling the media our children see? It should be banned full stop. Do we really want to trust that company with the sort of attention span of our you know, young people in this yeah. country? I, I think no. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's interesting to see Josh Hawley grill an executive of TikTok. But when you live in a one party state, essentially, you can't exist as someone operating like kind of as a capitalist as they would be there without being at least deferent to the state in some way, shape or form. Since you're on, on the me, record and can I be under oath, as clear as, as I would welcome you being clear. Okay, Do thank you. Any person who has access to U.S. user data, are they members of the Chinese Communist Party? Yes Let or no? Let me be clear again. Yes or no? The, you, for our U.S. users, the data is stored and housed in the United States. We have access controls. You're not answering place. my point. Let the record and reflect. You for, will not answer my question. Why for not? any of that data, it's overseen by our U.S.-led security team. That's not, the, that's not my question. Daily. That's not my question. My Furthermore, question is, does data, any employee who has access to U.S. user data, are they members of the Chinese Communist Party? You won't answer that question. And again, as a global technology platform, there is no other company that could make that assertion either. That sounds like a yes to me. That's, I think that's I'm, news. You know, Holly's somebody I've been pretty critical of. He's actually a friend of mine from law school, but this January 6th stuff really disappointed me. But this is him at his best. Like, mm -hmm. he would not let this executive off the hook. And... I felt like there, the executive to me, that's where I changed my opinion. Like I felt like this was a dishonest response to him. She yeah, did not totally. want to answer so slippery. whether there were members of TikTok's company mm. who had access to critical information who were members of the CCP. Now, to be clear, there are a lot of people who are members of the Chinese Communist Party. I think it's something like 90 million uh, people are members of the, the Chinese Communist Party. That's a lot of people. but. And, and this is not about the ethnicity of being Chinese. It has to do with whether no. you are under a coercive state that can call you up at any time and mm -hmm. get you to do their bidding. And if there are any of those people with either access to critical information about American citizens or the ability to manipulate yeah. algorithms to mess with our country and our young people, that's concerning. And the fact that this executive was not honest with Josh Hawley in a Senate hearing, and he even opened the hearing by saying how evasive they've been about even getting in front of the Senate, yeah. which now I understand why after seeing them. This is concerning, and that to, that to me was my turning point on this issue. It's like, this is where I become more populist. I just don't trust these people. Yeah, definitely. And there's been, um, there was a BuzzFeed expose a while back that um, had 
leaked audio from I think 80 different internal TikTok meetings where there was ample evidence that executives and people working for TikTok in China were accessing American data and it's their user agreements are super convoluted and I'm sure that considering the majority of people on their platforms are quite young they're not going through and they don't have the legal expertise to really consent to what potentially could be happening with their data but to your point that you made earlier about like our youth and our youth attention span that's being captured here. I think there's a tremendous, I mean, even just anecdotally, if you use TikTok, you know that like they'll start showing you stuff that's like weirdly attuned to you. And I think there is a potentially really sinister motive here that you could tinker with the algorithm or tinker with the exposure. And even if it's just moving the entire world's consciousness, like 0.1% in a certain direction, that can actually have a legitimate effect. And one thing that I find really interesting is China's very aware of the fact that while our teens are becoming more and more glued to their devices, they're very purposefully setting laws to yeah, prevent their that. own children from doing the same. So they're aware that this is not a good thing for society. Yeah, they have like a sort of ceiling for the amount of yeah. time people under 14 Children under it. 14 um, can use the Chinese counterpart to TikTok um, for only 40 minutes between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. So they're setting like a state-sanctioned bedtime. They also which, ban most of our companies, our, our yeah. internet companies. Yeah. You know, Google, Facebook, all that can't operate in China, you know, yeah. it, it makes me wonder what, you know, you, you get at a point, which is like, what could they do to us, right? And, it, and it, this was a discussion that Scott Galloway and John Favreau had on the uh, on, on Favreau's offline podcast. Last night, I was scrolling through Twitter, uh, which is my drug of choice, and I saw a former Democratic digital strategist, Wally Nowinski tweet, always hard to tell if it's the normal algorithm or if we're getting a preview of what propaganda is like when China owns a social media network. But my TikTok feed today is 50% videos about Pelosi visiting Taiwan. None are pro visit. Doesn't seem like a coincidence. And then I thought to myself, well, we were talking the other day and I was sharing this story about Pelosi, about this fundraiser, this $50,000 fundraiser I went to, and then we cut it up, put it on TikTok. It got over 300,000 views. Now, I'm not saying that it got over 300,000 views necessarily because they're like pro-democratic party. I'm like, well, I mean, they're anti-democratic party in China. It's possible maybe it got over 300,000 views because she's on their hit list because she went to Taiwan and she made a statement. Now that could be totally false. None of us really know. That's kind of the mystery lurking here, yeah. right? Is like, it's one thing if it's Facebook, a company that's based in the United States with all of its flaws. And we could talk about the politicization of it. We could debate it and all that, but there are people here they're not subject to a, an authoritarian government calling them up and saying, hey, like, we're going to th disappear you like Jack Ma mm -hmm. if you don't do our bidding, right? It's, yeah. it's part of the democratic process. That's not true of TikTok. Yeah, I think it's um, especially of concern. You know, we talk so much about Facebook's influence in elections and the way that algorithms and what people see online can influence what actually happens in our nation and this is a company that is based in a country as you mentioned that we just they have completely opaque like their mo is completely unclear here and what they're doing with this technology and i i would say that i i appreciate the protections that the biden administration is putting forth here but i do think that the more aggressive kind of trump populist route of potentially a forced sale to make this either like U.S. operations, U.S. based or something like that might actually be necessary considering right. how ubiquitous this this platform is becoming and even more and more so following the pandemic, which is shocking. Well, yeah. And let me put my technocratic hat back on for a second and talk about some of the real barriers here. Like it, it was true that a district court blocked Trump 
from uh, forcing the sale. So that's mm -hmm. relevant. And the, and the district court judge, uh, and there were multiple district court judges who ruled on this, one of them called it arbitrary and capricious and, and pointed to the law that Trump was trying to use here. And he's basically trying to use emergency national security mm -hmm. powers to do this. And I think that the, those words arbitrary and capricious are important here because it becomes arbitrary and capricious if we have one standard for TikTok and then not for like real estate companies coming here or whatever, right? We have to have a unique argument as to why this is special, which we could make because of the attention span of young people, et cetera. But then I'm like, why not expand this? Like, why are we allowing companies that answer to an authoritarian government, an enemy of the United States to operate freely in this country? We've already taken steps to uh, make it really hard for uh, Russian businesses to do business here, in part under a theory that they're answerable to Putin, right? And this is a point Favreau makes on his podcast, which I'm, I'm happy to see because I think uh, too many progressives have been too slow on the China issue. But he basically says, let's, let's substitute Putin for China here. Most people on the left would be like, of course, we should be like, you know, issuing sanctions and preventing people from owning assets in this country. But for some reason, we don't really have that hair trigger on the left as much on China. Now, to be clear, there are people like Warner and others, uh, Senator Warner and others who have been ringing the alarm bells on this. But I think it has been largely a more vocal chorus on the right. And then there are some people on the left, like Jamal Bowman and others who are like, oh, like he's basically equating TikTok, he says he doesn't, he's not any more alarmed by them than Facebook and others. And I'm like, I am like, these, there's, a, there's a difference. I don't love Meta, but they, as I talked about, they have different incentives than TikTok. Does. Yeah, I would say I'm definitely more concerned about TikTok than domestic companies. But I think it's important. Like I'm, I'm definitely a free trade girl and I don't want to short circuit all of our supply chains and a lot of the interconnectedness that we have with China that I think is just inevitable and will be harmful to American consumers. But there's a different case to be made about like literal supply chain issues and consumer goods and people being able to access things for cheaper prices because of manufacturing realities there and something like an app that is at least in my opinion a net social negative and I don't think it's benefiting society. Right. Like I and it's also in I would guess more more than half of the people in this office's phones at the very least. And yeah, I think like my sort of final analysis on this is you could draw a straight line from the TikTok critiques to cultural institutions. Like there's a great book by a Wall Street Journal reporter about how basically China has been essentially silenced Hollywood. The reason why we keep showing Scott Galloway clips on this kind of stuff is there are only so many places you can go in society now to even get critiques of China because they've hijacked so much of our society. And so to me, that's a problem. And that to me, that's a problem that goes beyond TikTok. And that's where I think this arbitrary capricious thing is really relevant. Um, well, with that, let's talk about healthcare. So we're now in this sort of squarely in this part of this episode, where we're going to go through three different issues that we think have and massive. And you're going to flip from from free market restrictions to opening well, the free see. market. <laughs> let's give me a report card at the end of this to see if I'm consistent. But let's start with healthcare. There was this blockbuster piece of journalism from the New York Times that looked at the issue that we have of nonprofit uh, hospital corporations, which I think mm -hmm. most people would be surprised to know are over 50% of hospitals in this country. And you would think like if you ask somebody, hey, who are the big boogeymen and women in the uh, the healthcare system and the lack of access and the, inc the runaway costs in our healthcare system, I think people would say big pharma, they'd say overpaid doctors, they'd say insurance companies, HMOs. I don't think a lot of people would talk about healthcare companies, but this piece has some eye-opening data and a really eye-opening story about how screwed up these nonprofit hospital corporations really can be. Yeah, this is, something that I think you can be very much insulated from if you've never 
gotten a hospital bill without insurance, which I accidentally did once a couple years ago um, by my own stupid mistake. But I saw the most ridiculous inflation of prices of like a super simple test that I went to get done that was like a hundred times what it would have cost the hospital to do. And I think that the issue here and what the New York Times is revealing is that insurance companies insulate a lot of us from what these nonprofit or so-called nonprofit institutions are able to pull off. But they use the example of um, Bon Secours Mercy Help, which is one of the largest nonprofit chains of um, hospitals in the country. And they raked in $1 billion over 50 hospitals or through 50 hospitals just last year. They have $9 billion in their cash reserves and they're using very clearly concerning uh, methods to pull this in, including like they operate some hospitals in, in lower income areas that are under a federal program able to get medication for half the price, but then they buy it for half the price and sell it to the community for the full price and then end up not even filtering that that profit back into those hospitals, but just spreading it out over more affluent hospitals in their network. I mean, the, the corruption is rampant, and this is just one example of many. Yeah, and sometimes it's even more than half the price. So there's this cancer drug called Keytruda, which uh, they can get around three for around $3,500 under this discount, under this federal program. And they could turn around and they have billed insurers for $25,000. Mm-hmm. So $3,500 to $25,000. And so, you know, one former employee called this in the New York Times uh, a money laundering scheme where they're basically laundering money through the poor neighborhoods yeah. to then basically invest in the more wealthy neighborhoods. And what's crazy is like this rule is so screwed up that they don't have to disclose how much they're making money on this. They don't have to keep it in the mm-hmm. neighborhood that they're using. So like the subsidy maybe makes some sense in that poorer neighborhood, maybe, but then they're able to use the same track of land to then say like, okay, this wealthier network, right? Cause it's this, it's a subsidiary of the same company. Yeah. And, and I think this widens out to a bigger problem here, right? I think there's a problem with nonprofit hospitals that's particularly pronounced. And then there's a problem with hospitals, but let's talk about the nonprofit part of this um, in the first place. So like we've talked about nonprofits recently, these are entities that the government says you're providing a public benefit, so You don't have to pay, t- pay taxes. And donations to you are tax exempt. Now we've done a really poor job as a country to say, are you actually providing a public benefit? Essentially what happens is you apply to the IRS, you know, in this case, this is a charity, I think going back like a hundred years, none started this this entity and now it's totally transformed into this corporate like entity. Yeah. Um, we're not really keeping up with whether this thing is actually providing benefits. And if you look at it, whether it's CEO pay of these entities or runaway profits, this entity made 44% profit margin uh, in a year that's like if you think about it if you're if you're keeping score at home a a restaurant in your neighborhood would be lucky if they had five percent profit margins like this is a crazy profit margin yeah it's it's incredible and one thing that is also concerning is the idea that if you have like excess profit coming in you need to put it back into the company but essentially what is happening here is it's going back and being filtered through pay of executives um one really staggering statistic from 2019 showed that the average chief executive in nonprofit hospitals is making 3.5 million dollars annually there's some outliers on the higher end there but um between 2005 and 2015 that's a 93 percent pay increase compared to a 15 percent increase for pediatricians over that 
that period of time and only a 3% increase for nurses. So essentially these, these nonprofit hospitals are enriching themselves, enriching their endowments, and then enriching the people on the top, but that's not filtering down to breaks for patients at the bottom to better pay for the people that are doing the actual on the ground work in their hospitals. It's, it's staggering. Yeah, it's crazy. And a lot of times these hospital corporation CEOs, these nonprofit CEOs, uh, they're often affiliated with universities. Very often that CEO of that nonprofit hospital corporation is making more than the president university in yeah. a lot of cases, way more, right? So in 2019, the Duke University president made 1.5 million. Um, the Chancellor of Health Affairs made 2.7 million. The highest paid top executive at Banner Health, which is in Phoenix, made $21.6 million. And this is a problem for many reasons. You talked about runaway healthcare costs. You know, people in the US spend around 20% of the GDP on healthcare compared mm-hmm. to about half in developed countries. And our outcomes are in many cases worse and definitely not any better than a lot of those countries. So this gets at like our healthcare system is fundamentally broken. And a lot of people I think are focusing on the wrong boogeyman. Like, yes, there's problem with big problems, huge problems. There's problem with HMOs, yeah. insurance companies, there probably isn't a problem of overpaid doctors and nurses. I think it's actually probably that they're underpaid at this yeah. point. But we should be spending more time talking about these entities. Yeah, definitely. And I think that there's just on the zoomed out level and attention where we don't have a single payer healthcare system here because we have a free market tradition in America and we do have a very innovative healthcare sector that's undeniable. But then there's this tension of like these kind of piecemeal solutions to making sure that people can afford their healthcare. And then all of a sudden we now have this system where either your employer or your insurer that you're paying out of pocket is the person paying the bills and you're insulated from the reality of what they are. You can't shop for prices. You can't like the free market can't react to what these hospitals are presenting you because you can walk in and get a service done and have no idea what that right. what the price tag is going to be. And if you were in in a city like New York and you could see that this hospital would do this surgery for this amount of money and this one would do it for that amount of money, like they would have to compete against each other, but they're completely insulated and someone else is is paying the bill for a lot of people who come in. And then, you know, people can apply for relief if they end up with a hospital bill that they can't pay out of many of these hospitals, at least in New York. But the reality is that the vast majority of, of the time, there's like this cyclical cycle here where even if the government is your insurer or someone stepping in, we like the free market cannot operate with all these intermediaries. And so that's why we're in this position. Yeah, but I think the problem with healthcare though is that it will never be a truly free market. Like a good example is you know Stephen Brill has written about some of the stuff you're talking about. My favorite book on healthcare is called The Bitter Pill. He wrote like you know somewhere like 10 years ago at this point. And he talks about what you're talking about, which is like this thing called the charge master, which is this list of, you know, whether it's a cotton swab or a needle mm-hmm. or whatever. Every hospital's charge master is different. None of them are consistent. None of them make any sense and most of all, there isn't a single hospital administrator who can explain how the charge master prices came to be, and and none of them want to talk about it. But he doesn't go so far as to say, all right, we need to just create a free market. And the reason why he does is because he says, he gives an analogy of like, let's say today I got hit by a car. Uh, I'm not planning to get by a car, so it's not like I woke up saying, oh, let me go bargain hunting for the right emergency room. Like, I'm going to be sent to yeah. the most, like close emergency room. I don't have any leverage in the healthcare system. And that's not just true of emergency situations. Like if there's one cancer drug that saves my life, that keeps me alive, then I don't have leverage in that situation. Mm -hmm. I have to, 
I have to use that drug. So it's not like a straight market system. And in a lot of cases, you may live in a rural area where there really can only be one clinic, right? So in this case, we need something, in my opinion, short of a free market system. Um, but he does have this interesting tie analogy, which we should play, because uh, I think it gets at, it, I think in very vivid terms, how screwed up the system really is. Uh, you're wearing um, a really nice tie. Yeah. So if you walked into a tie store and said, how much is that tie? The first thing that would be different from the medical marketplace is you'd get to know how much the tie is before you buy it, which doesn't happen in a hospital. The second thing that would be, uh, that would be different is if... Uh, the person running the store said, oh, that tie, that tie is going to be $6,000. You'd get to decide not to buy it. He'd say $6,000 for a tie. Are you kidding? I'm not, you know, not, you know, not even Charlie Rose is going to spend $6,000 for a tie. The third thing that would happen is there might be another tie store up the block where you could look at ties. So there might be competition. Typically in a hospital situation or in a laboratory situation, the doctor sends you for a test or the doctor sends you to the hospital. You don't know what the prices are. And after you get the bill, you can't understand the bill. If you're insured, you may not care what the bill says. In fact, you'll feel great because your $6,000 tie will have been discounted by the insurance company to $3,000 and they'll pay 80% of the $3,000 and you'll feel terrific. Uh, the only difference is the tie actually cost the hospital maybe $6 to make. And Ricky, you had this, you shared with, with me this clip of this LASIK surgeon. We have this insane system now where you need healthcare, you're the buyer, I'm the doctor, I'm the seller of healthcare and somebody else pays the bill. Who the heck is going to shop for price when somebody else is paying the bill? You know, LASIK is, is because it's not covered by insurance, the cost of it has actually gone down and the quality of the service has gone up in yeah, tandem. Which I mean, having people be able to shop different options with more transparency has led to innovation. Of course, that's not a life and death situation, but there are examples and times where there are life and death situations where price transparency could be really, really valuable. And um, Mark Cuban started his own drug company that is completely transparent with generic drugs and the prices that they sell them for. And for example, there's one leukemia medication that would retail for $2,500 just out in the regular world, but he's able to provide it to people for $14.40. So there are legitimate instances where it could be a life or death situation. It could be a drug that is for leukemia. And there are free market innovations that could make that more accessible to the typical American, especially given the backdrop that 18 Americans couldn't pay for at least one drug they were prescribed. Yeah. So that's- There is one challenge to that though, and I, and I love what Cuban is doing is that it only applies to generics. Yeah. And in, in the way our country works, and this is part of our version of the free market, is that yeah. you get a certain monopoly on a drug as a, a drug company for a yeah. certain period of time, and there's little we could do about overcharging in that context. Other countries do. Other countries mm -hmm. will step in and say, you can't charge more than that. We generally don't allow that. You know, Brill has an interesting solution to this. You know, he wrote this book right when the Affordable Care Act debate mm -hmm. was going on, and he essentially said, you know, the Affordable Care Act was a victory of sorts. I think he called it a minor victory for access, but a huge loss for costs. And he views costs as the biggest issue in our healthcare yeah. system. And the, he, I think he would agree with us on a lot of the problems. I think his solution I found really interesting because he is not a kind of guy who I would view as a super lefty guy. He looks to Medicare as the most efficient player in the market. And I found this really interesting because when he would compare the charge master charges 
to Medicare, to private insurers, the people getting screwed the most are the non-insured. And he has mm-hmm. a whole chapter on that and how terrible that system is. And it's a big driver. I think at the time it was the largest driver of bankruptcy. It still may be yeah. uh, healthcare costs and healthcare bills. But he talks about how Medicare is so efficient. He talks about how, like he, he compares the charge master for a Medicare patient to a private insurer. It's infinitely more reasonable from for Medicare. And he shows that this is not just the government forcing cost losses on hospital, but it's actually what these things should be charged for. And then he also talks about how the administrative costs, and as you know, people who are long-time listeners know, I'm no fan of government efficiency, but Medicare seems to be some kind of miracle. You know, the cost for Medicare administrative costs are t- two-thirds of 1% or less than $3.80 per claim. Private insurers' administrative costs are much higher. Like Aetna, for example, at the time he wrote this book, they ran their administrative costs at 29% or $30 each claim. So I'm like, whoa, like, I don't know what's going on at Medicare, but maybe that's part of our solution. Is that like, maybe we allow more people to buy into that system, which I know is a part of the big part of the Democratic primary debate. That was actually the the moderate position. <laughs> that's how far the debate had gone, but maybe allowing people to buy into Medicare could help here. Mm, I think also just to kind of tie a bow on this and go back to the nonprofit hospitals, one of the most low-hanging pieces of fruit here is that the government is providing these hospitals with a tax incentive to be nonprofit, and they therefore have every right to ensure that these are actually operating as nonprofits yep. and forcing some price transparency or some, some cost transparency from them. But at the very least provide some form of relief for people that are going to the majority of hospitals that are operating under this system. Yeah, the North Carolina Treasurer actually partnered with John Hopkins University to look into their system mm-hmm. and found just like egregious examples yeah. of this kind of stuff where basically they were they were looking at the bottom line money spent on charitable purposes of their nonprofit hospitals and essentially, essentially found that it's minuscule. Yeah. And and their treasurer said, look, and th- these are powerful entities. We don't think of hospital corporations as powerful entities, but often in a small town, they're the biggest employer right and they often have really good brand awareness like if i watch the buffalo bills for example there's always a commercial for the local hospital the players when they donate money they donate it to local pediatric ward or whatever none of them are looking at the bottom line to be like whoa these people could build whatever ward they want with these kind of profits like some of them are sitting on billions of dollars Mm -hmm. um, of endowments just like universities like what you know gladwell called you know the the higher education system like universities like harvard hedge funds with educational institutions attached to them a lot of these are hedge funds with medical institutions attached to it, it's tough to take on these entities. Uh, and I think like there's little prospect for major reform unless there's some kind of populist uprising. I really do wonder, and maybe we have some listeners who are in Richmond, what the reaction of the community on the ground is to that story that just came out. Like are people with pitchforks outside of this institution? They should be. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that there are counterparts all around the country that we're yet to even know about. But speaking of our part of the country, (laughs) um, we have an interesting spending situation going on here as well that relates to hotels and homelessness and tackling our our problem here in New York City that's only become worse recently with the migrant crisis and buses coming in from Texas and Arizona. But the state has invested hundreds of millions of dollars, 200 million at this point, and yet we still do not have a single hotel room that has become a housing unit for the homeless. And this is a story that goes back to August of 2021 when Cuomo signed the Housing Our Neighbors with Dignity Act 
Act to convert these hotels into homeless housing, um, giving nonprofit developers funds to do that on the state's behalf and to make these small room units with on-site help and, and services. But um, there have been few, barely any bites from developers. And this is just kind of this like very um, bureaucratic red tape mess disaster story. And um, it's it's staggering that we could pay $200 million as a state and not have a single bed that is now available to someone. Yeah. And as I look at this, as somebody who's a former Democratic operative, it's like a perfect amalgamation of many of the flaws of a lot of the people that I spent a lot of time with and candidates I helped get elected. It, this story involves deference to uh, organized labor over mm-hmm. marginalized groups. In this case, is, you know, the homeless and migrants arriving in our city. You know, we've got the lack of attention to follow through on the unsexy elements of government, you know, announcing big things, having a press conference, and then you mm-hmm. look back and, you know, nothing happens. Yeah. And then community opposition, so nimbyism. So you've got a lot of these cases where, like, for the past few years, people were like, we're going to convert this place, whether it's a hotel or something else, or just build a shelter, which mm-hmm. often happens in New York. And then you've got the Upper West outsiders saying, I don't want this in my community and coming up with every reason why they couldn't. So, you know, these self-described progressives, they don't want to bend to to organized labor, even if it means the most marginal need it. They don't want to follow through and make shit happen. And they don't want the most downtrodden in their community. They want them in other people's communities. Mm. And, and you look at it and you're like, well, when people like Ron DeSantis send people across the country, you know, in my opinion, for, you know, not very well-intentioned reasons, it's a setup and it's a perfect setup because the people receiving them are so flawed that they look ridiculous. I mean, this is just a staggering failure on so many levels, including the fact that there wasn't even a term sheet from the housing agency on how to pull this off until January of 2022. Totally inefficient. And we're a year since this inflated budget has come out without a single bed open. There are now only a small handful of proposals from developers, four in the city, one elsewhere in the state, which are all in pre-development phase and agencies are still evaluating the the uh, proposals. So, I mean, even if developers wanted to make a move and try to make this happen, despite zoning regulations and all the red tape, they're not even being given the green light to do so. And I think there's... Yeah, let me ask you about one really dumb part of this whole story. Yeah. And for context, if people are listening, the Hotel Trade Council, the hotel union, essentially employees union, is very powerful in New York. Yeah. One of the most powerful unions. In in, Manhattan, particularly. Yeah, in, in the city. Eric Adams got their endorsement. De Blasio is very close with them. If you talk to any city council mem- mm-hmm. member, it's one of the most coveted endorsements. They, I couldn't believe this. I had to ask you about this a couple times. They have a veto over the sale of a hotel so in New York City? essentially they need to get the blessing from the union if there are union workers that are at the hotel. Um, to or sell. reach, yeah, to sell, to figure out how. I mean, the union is rightfully interested in preserving jobs in these hotels. or And they can reach a financial agreement with them. The New York Post spoke to a developer that they say is very knowledgeable who said that it would add about 30% to operating costs to strike that financial deal. And then Adam- To basically is, keep the union- Union employees at the yeah. shelter, which let's pause on it for a second on that. Like may sound great to a listener at home, but a shelter and a hotel are two different things. They sh- they There's, don't necessarily have to be the same employees. And often yeah. you need people who are who are experts on trauma, who are experts on navigating government assistance. That's not true of the random person who's you know just checking in for a night at a hotel. That's totally different. Even yeah, the cleaning is, services I mean, are different. You know, 
It's exceptionally convoluted and that's, but I think that's just one of many issues because it's not even, like you don't even have the developers coming, like clamoring at this in the first place. But to your point, Adams is backed by the Hotel Trades Council Union and now he's advocating for like opening these up in the outer boroughs where the union's not, where the union's not involved. But then you have the whole legislative kind of area here where developers are being told to create these basically idealized housing units out of these tiny New York, uh, I mean, these aren't high-end hotels. These are teeny tiny little like closets that people have been staying in. And they need to have kitchenettes with all the like Yeah, that's like another dumb top. part of the rule. Explain that. Um, you need to, if we're converting these things into, into spaces housing for the units. F- housing use for the homeless or yeah. for anybody else. They need to have a kitchenette, not shared, private with a stove, a fridge, a sink, and a private bath. So. If you, I mean, very few hotel rooms in New York, even nice ones have like a kitchenette or the plumbing involved to pull that off. And not only that, developers are seeing that as too expensive while interest rates are going up, supply chains, materials, like everything is so ridiculously tough. But then there's also, I think the most critical part here, which is timing. And there's an example in California where they pulled off almost exactly the same situation, but they proposed it in um, March of 2020 and they were opening shelters or new housing capacity between July and December of that year, which was when hotels were really desperate to sell. They were really struggling. Tourism was down, obviously. No one was traveling in the depths of the pandemic. And then New York tried to do this copycat thing a little too late. And then not only that, they didn't even implement it when the opportunity was there. And now people are back in hotels and hotels are opening back up. And why would they want to sell and why should they sell? Yeah. The irony of this whole thing is all these random things we're throwing on this, like the kitchenette and all that, it's like perfect is the enemy of the good Absolutely. or the adequate in this case. And now, so, you know, you've got migrants arriving in New York City. Adams is saying that he's overwhelmed. They're housing them in part in like these army-like tent-like yeah. barracks. So that somehow is acceptable, but not like a shared kitchen. Like this or seems like an absurd people who are unhoused in New York are going to the bathroom on the street. Right. Like I'm sure that they would rather be in. Well, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not advocating for that, but that's, that's their option that's ahead of them right now. And there is a law that is standing between them having access to a shared bathroom, which developers say is often more feasible and more cost-effective and the street. This being the trade-off of either this perfect idealized world or living on the street is just completely unacceptable and completely arbitrary. Part of it was just just a dumb move in the first place. Like New York, also because of the very same union recently, made it harder to build hotels. So it's not Mm -hmm. exactly like we were so pandemic-centered that we didn't really think about a world where we'd be back where we are now, where we're starting to reach really high capacity, very low uh, vacancy in hotels. We should have passed a law that allowed the government to view the funds as more malleable than they are and cut through all the red tape. Because then we could take aim at things like, for example, an issue that we have now that probably is going to be longstanding, which is our office vacancy rates. Right now, we have vacancy rates in our office space at 16% in Manhattan office space. That's just Manhattan. That's lower than the 1990s, 2001, and 2008 recessions already. And Mm -hmm. we're like heading into a recession. So it's the the change of work is probably more likely to be permanent than the change of hotel utilization in New York City. We should be malleable society and be able to say, all right, let's go in and convert those like 
facilities potentially into housing, mm-hmm. whether it's housing for the homeless, housing for migrants, or just housing for anybody, because then it'll decrease the cost for other people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's notable that while these nonprofit developers were struggling to get these funding and like the approval to pull this off, there were private developers who were often swooping in because they don't have the red tape and buying right. up these hotels in lieu of that. So I think that there is a good chance that that will happen organically without the government having to step in and provide all these provisions. Right. Um, in terms of like a lot of these hotels were converted into just regular apartment buildings. And, you know, that's a net positive too for the housing market while we're struggling with supply. Yeah. But I think just adding this government intermediary is really what we're struggling with. And there's examples around the country of this idea that doing something privately or creating more housing privately is not an acceptable solution. And there's this really amazing example from LA that is just so frustrating. This guy, I've brought this up on the show before months back when we talked about homelessness, but Elvis Summers, he's a formerly homeless LA musician who crowdfunded this effort to build these little solar powered houses that have a lock, have everything that homeless people need, their own little home door. They're nicely painted. They're not a terrible eyesore and people donated private land there were some that did end up on public land but they were seized and destroyed by the city without notice the people who on private and the public land yeah Yeah. the people who um who lived in them could not take their clothes or their medications out and there were veterans that were living there that were evicted and this is on the basis that this isn't some sort of like government approved entity. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it's not an acceptable solution. And the more acceptable solution consistently in a lot of these cities that, that would like to think of themselves as progressive is to keep people living on the street until there is this ideal solution that is increasingly elusive and increasingly impractical, especially now that we lost this pandemic window, at least California to their credit seized on their moment to convert these hotels. But this sort of situation is, just goes to show how frustrating the fact that there are private solutions that people can reach on their own, like the like the government just coming in and batting that down. That is just infuriating. Yeah, it makes me think about a friend of mine is the president of the Veterans Community Project. They build a lot of these low, cow- low cost housing around the country for mm-hmm. veterans, often veterans experiencing homelessness. You know, if New York cut through all the red tape, we could do this. And it dovetails with something we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, our government is perfectly comfortable, you know, wielding the power of eminent domain or, you know, I, I have mixed feelings because it's my team, but, you know, just approved like a gazillion dollars for the Buffalo Bills Stadium. There's all sorts of weird shit that happened to get that done. Like, we'll move heaven and earth for the right people, but we're not doing that in this case, right? Yeah. Because it's politically difficult. You put, you know, you take, you know, like Gramercy Park or something and put a bunch of like low cost housing on there. You're going to have a riot of very powerful and influential people. So that's why they're like, well, you're oh, also yeah, going to have Island, an enormous you know? decrease in tax income around that area because property property values are going to decrease considerably. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I live on off of Bowery. There's a Bowery mission right there. There's more homeless people in my neighborhood than in almost any other neighborhood in New York City, yet it's one of the most expensive zip codes in all of New York City. So I think like New Yorkers are tough, they can deal with it. And, you know, to me, we shouldn't just be sending the most vulnerable out to the outer boroughs. I think that's like a terrible example. We should share the burden as a city, right? And I think that leads to resentment. That's why you see, mm-hmm. you know, places like Staten Island grow super resentful of the progressive leadership of the city is because they sense a certain hypocrisy that I think might be there. Well, I think there's also a frustration that I'm sympathetic with that 
is essentially that there like we all know in the back of our minds that zoning and issues with the way that the government kind of artificially contains housing and and says what can be built where and what can go up and what can't on private property like we all know in the back of our minds that a free market or at least i think a lot of libertarian-minded people know in the back of their minds that allowing the free market to operate a little bit more like if you if you live in a district that has a ceiling on how high a building can go like there's probably a government entity that's keeping housing artificially inflated for that reason, causing the housing crisis. And then the idea that that same government is gonna waltz in and put up uh, potentially like a shelter that could be detrimental to your the public safety in the area, just artificially and arbitrarily right. as well. Like, I think there is an understandable frustration that the free market is not allowed to cater to housing demands and as a result the government's also going to swoop in and say well here just deal with this this situation in your backyard that you didn't sign up for and have fun yeah and sometimes arrest the very people that can't find homes and criminalize the very act of being homeless which we talked about you know (laughs) well let's talk about one more area where the government has to be involved uh which is in our education system there is a raging debate going on Raging is probably an overstatement. Um, it was like a reasonable and, you know, I would say measured debate going on on the internet about whether teachers are overpaid and underpaid. And, and some of our favorite thinkers and writers have weighed in here. You know, Matt Iglesias, Liz Wolf, who's been on this podcast before, both have written in the past couple of weeks about this issue, trying to answer the question, like, are teachers overpaid or underpaid? Or is even that the right question? Ricky, where should we start on this? Well, I think we should start with just some stats here, which the average starting salary right now for a teacher in the country is $42,000. The average salary, no matter where they are in their career, is 65000 but that's declining based on inflation-adjusted data, and 18% of teachers are taking up a second job to meet, make ends meet. So I think regardless of, I, I, like, I don't see the world where they're overpaid, that's for mm-hmm. sure. I think that there's remarkable variability depending on where you're looking and how much, you know, there's pay and then there's pensions after you retire, if you have 30 years of service. And so I think the variability is enormous, but even with that taken into account, given the utility that teachers provide society and their importance, I, I don't see a case that they're overpaid. Yeah, and you know, Iglesias, I think, goes through this in a smart way. And if you put his piece together with a couple of things that have been written about over the past two weeks, there are like sort of subsets of this question. Like, are they paid a living wage? And Mm -hmm. there's this data from MIT, they track this and they define a living wage as income necessary to support the average family of four when there's one person shouldering Mm -hmm. that burden. So one person taking care of three children, for example. And they find that 30 states pay teachers less than average living wage in that state. Now, to be clear, this is, they, they have a pretty high bar. They put the living wage na- nationwide at just over $100,000. Obviously, there's a big regional variation there. Mm-hmm. And under that standard, uh, only 30% of Americans actually make a living wage. So that's a pretty strict burden. But yeah. And, and obviously, like my mom was a single mother. There's a lot of single mothers. Like most of my parents at the school I ran were single parents. So there are a lot of single parents, but they're not the only parents, right? So that, that I think, would cut in the direction of, all right, maybe teachers are underpaid. But then they ask, well, are teachers paid comparably to other professions with similar qualifications? In terms of education and college degrees, right? Yeah, basically trying to like create a match between them Mm -hmm. and others. 
this was kind of a weird debate. I think the data can, you can, you can argue the data either way. Where mm-hmm. do you come out on this one? Yeah, there's a 23.5% gap between public school teachers and other college educated professionals. But there is the question then that comes up with the lengthy breaks and the provisions that you do. Summers That's, off. Yeah. Which, pensions. Yeah, exactly. Tenure. So there's definitely yeah. a lot of context there. And I would also say on the international stage, like we're up there with developed nations in terms of how well we compensate teachers. Germany's at the very top, but most American families depend on public school teachers for at least some point in their children's education. And so they are providing a uniquely important service to society. And we might be disincentivizing the right kind of people who are mindful of their career and their potential pay trajectory on the basis that this isn't a place where you can really grow exponentially based on performance. Right. And I think we do pay more in sort of real terms. But when you say uh, how much are teachers getting paid relative to other uh, similarly credentialed people, mm-hmm. we're talking about like college degrees, et cetera. You know, when you rank the OECD countries, Portugal and Germany and Ireland are all near the top. They're about 1.5 times teachers. They make 1.5 times what a comparably educated person would make. And obviously there's a lot of work being done there around comparably educated, which we'll come back to. Uh, the U.S. is at 0.75, putting us just second from the bottom. So we're above Iceland. I'm not sure what's happening in Iceland, but below Latvia. So in that sense, we're paying teachers less relative to other credentialed people. We're a pretty rich country, right? So it's more like mm-hmm. what are, what's the sort of relative status and pay of teachers? I'm with you that like, look, it's not a one-to-one comparison. Like being a teacher has a lot of perks you know, you have a lot of job securities and, and it's not just tenure. It has to do with yeah. the fact that it's kind of a recession proof job, especially once you've done enough time. So it's nearly guaranteed job security. You could retire earlier than a lot of people, et cetera. So it does come with its perks. Now, I'm not one of those reformers who thinks, well, then suck it up and get paid what you want. I would attach pay to other things uh, to help revolutionize the teaching profession and professionalize and attract more dynamic young people to the work. Yeah, and I would say that the American public is pretty much on board with extending the pay for teachers. And I mean, I would be an advocate similar to you of making sure that that's performance-based, which I think a lot of um, provisions that unions have negotiated kind of step in the way of. But um, this is polling data that happened around a 2018 teacher strike, so take it as you will. But 78% of the American public said that pay for teachers was too low and 50% said that they would be willing to pay more taxes in order to compensate for that, which I would say it's very difficult to get people to say that they're willing to pay more taxes under any circumstances. So this goes to show that that's a legitimate problem that Americans are aware of. And, you know, we it is a service to society to make sure that we're attracting the right people. And a really disturbing statistic is that most teachers are coming from the bottom half of the SAT and ACT distribution. And, you know, that it makes sense that if you're a super high achieving person and you're looking at the the pay potential and the, the long term payoff and the fact that your success might not be um, rewarded in the same way that it might be in other career paths, that that's a disincentive to take this path and and go down this career path. Is that what you've seen in your experience? Yeah. One thing is also worth mentioning is the regional variability here is dramatic. So a place like Colorado, you're making like something like a quarter, you know, like, you know, something like minus 25% relative to what similarly credentialed people are versus New York where you're making Mm -hmm. more. Like there's a big difference here. I would say like, 
My experience is very different because I ran schools, and Iglesias winds up getting to this, I ran schools that were built on a premise that we had to pay more early on to attract the people that you're talking about, mm-hmm. like the dynamic young people, teach for America type folks, which I could we could have a whole segment about the pluses and minuses of working with entities like that. And we became known as a place that would get teachers really good really fast. Yeah. And what, so my experience was they were smarter than your average person, some of the most brilliant, competent people I knew. Now, the Iglesias piece has this interesting takeaway where they look at a study from Massachusetts, which is actually probably one of the most excellent charter markets, charter school markets in the country, and, and showed that charters like mine, and this tracks with my experience, were really good at attracting those dynamic young people. Mm-hmm and weeding out the underperformers, whether they just couldn't keep up with the demands of the job or we would fire them, to be honest, because it's not, you know, we're not unionized. So if somebody like is phoning it in for children, they shouldn't be in front of children. Or if they're just not capable of managing a classroom, we'd weed them Mm -hmm. out. This study, which we'll link to in the show notes, essentially shows that charters are pretty effective mechanism at weeding out the underperformers. And then what's happening in Massachusetts is those very smart, teachers are like who want to stay in the profession look across to the traditional public schools and are like well if i want to stay in this profession i'm going to then hop over to the traditional public school to get my tenure Mm -hmm. and in a weird way they're kind of working in tandem and what iglesias was proposing was well why don't why doesn't the traditional public school extend tenure protections to a little bit later so that they can hire and fire people quicker Mm -hmm. early on i would add pay them more too Mm -hmm. because right now it's so much of the the, the money that we're investing in, in increased teacher salaries are often back, you know, they're, they're sort of concentrated later in the careers of teachers. And so I like what he's proposing. I have a second part of the proposal, but what do you think about that proposal? Like, you know, just like extend, you know, wait a little longer for tenure, pay more early on, hire and fire people faster. Yeah, I mean, I think that is completely logical. And I mean, this is kind of a pattern in this uh this episode here where our middlemen were insurers and yeah. the government and now the unions that are kind of standing in the way of making sure that people are weeded out on the basis of of their ability to excel in this career path that is so critical but yeah. so i mean i'm i'm on board with that yeah and, and on the flip side for charters like this is something that you know i some of my friends are going to take issue with i can't believe i'm even saying it like maybe they need to consider some form of tenure eventually because mm-hmm. if i were to give the deal to a lot of my my former self but also a lot of my friends in the movement and say a teacher makes it to their fifth year that person is an absolute beast of a teacher in almost every high performing charter that person by year five both by nature of who they are and how capable they are but also the trainings of these really good charter schools are showing exponential growth year after year in terms of the ability to teach. They're very good at making teachers good really fast who stick with the work. So that person is truly excellent by their fifth year. And the data bears this out. All of Mm -hmm. our data bore this out too. You should keep that person in the work. And schools are trying all sorts of things. There's like a bonus. We used to do a bonus, like almost like a balloon bonus uh, after a couple of years. I think we did after year three or something that if you then committed to the next year or whatever, I think some of these schools should just consider old-fashioned tenure at a certain point just to be like, hey, lock them in. I think if they can get that deal, like that teacher will be awesome. Like maybe there's certain like, you know, like Only urgency five issues years, and though. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it could be like a, I don't know. I a feel scaled like sense of ten- five years, like in a lot of relinquish- school system is, is later than almost any no, school I know, system. I know. I know. But to relinquish um, the ability to potentially fire someone if they're not 
if they decide after five years that that's the time that they're going to start kind of skimming by. I yeah, don't know. Like tough. that concerns me. But like you have to weigh it against how truly challenging that first year teacher can be. Right? Yeah. So it's like that that replacement. So let's say you get to five years, you really know a lot. So you, something really dramatic has to happen in your life for you to really suck from then on if yeah. you're really good by f year five. Now you just have to be careful not to be offering this tenure to just anybody, right? That replacement level, right? Like to mm -hmm. use the sports, I think it's like wins over replacement or something is like a, a war is like a, a sports No idea term. what you're talking about. So okay. I would say like gains over replacement teacher yeah. by that fifth year compared to that first year teacher. I mean, it's so high. I would almost justify anything in the name of that. Even if that person decreases 30% effectiveness, they're going to be way more effective than that first year teacher on average. Wouldn't there be like an incremental sort of alternative I though i think that would probably be i just when you're doing something as sensitive as interacting with children i just i don't like the idea of anyone being it like guaranteed to be well, able my to tenure that. is is not the tenure that i would i would advocate i wouldn't advocate for like the new york tenure which takes years often if there's some any ambiguity about an accusation to get rid of any teacher whether they're falling asleep in class or they do egregious things or even in the case of progressive school districts if a teacher says something racist you could just google these stories like it's really hard to get rid of teachers under tenure under those types of circumstances that's not the tenure that i would talk about like there would be a four cause provision where if you're like literally doing something actively harmful to kids or you're showing like gross neglect of the children in your classroom, I would still get rid of them. But like, there would be like protection then, hey, if you're just not, you know, if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed 30 days in a row, like that's not gonna be a reason to get rid of you, you mm. know? I can't I believe know. I'm saying this. I'm not sure. I'm gonna get some angry emails from my ed reform friends, but all I'm saying <laughs> is like, there's a there's a bargain here. There's all, all sorts of other stuff that we've talked about before, like, what it means to be a teacher we should take a look at. Like some teachers should be able to teach huge groups of people because mm -hmm. they're that good while others pull kids for small group instruction because maybe they're not good at classroom management, but they're really good at explaining something. Yeah, right? Like we need to differentiate. And I also think that opens up differentiation of pay. So there's like a lot we need to do here. We also can leverage online learning. Like places like Career have long had this sort of, this uh, example of using teachers on mass to educate, like almost rock star teacher model. I think we, some of this is already happening through YouTube and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff, but I do think school districts and school systems can do more to incentivize this type of stuff where if they have one like person really good at teaching the standard. a little bit of an experiment with that over the past couple of years that didn't go so well. In terms though. of online learning? Yeah. I think when we look back at the online learning, it will, we will look back on this saying, almost like what we look at the dot-com bubble bursting, which is, there was a lot of carnage, but at the end of it, there's going to be a few things left standing that are going to revolutionize the next wave of education. I think there will be a few things left standing, yeah. but I think in any large scale rollout, that's detrimental to the younger the kid is, the more detrimental that is. To yeah, their and to be clear, I'm not advocating for that master teacher online being the replacement for education, but it's more like, can you leverage the excellence of one teacher mm -hmm. to enhance the experience of other people yeah. while they're also doing uh, in-person instruction, Yeah, you know? Well, I think that's what we've got here. So I think we've now talked about a couple of different uh, areas where the government is involved in an essential service. Have I stayed consistent? Um, I would say looking at our outline here of stories, but I don't know. You're, I think there's a little bit of an anti-free trade tinge in the in the first segment there with TikTok, but I understand it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll have to go back and listen to the tape. We'll be right back here on Thursday, and we'll see you then. 
I'm Ricky Schlott. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht, video editing by Ava Maldonado.